Thanks for listening to this episode of the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, an executive editor at First Word Pharma Plus. This week, I catch up with my colleagues Becky Simon and Michael Flanagan to discuss the potential impact of delayed regulatory filings for Novavax's COVID-19 vaccine. We look at new development deals announced by Biogen and Eli Lilly in the past few days, and I run through some results from our latest physician survey showing that face-to-face meetings between pharma sales reps and doctors continue to increase as social distancing measures are reduced. This week, we've seen two noteworthy developments on the COVID-19 vaccine landscape. Pfizer announced that they have secured emergency use authorization in the US for their vaccine in adolescence. And Novavax um, announced that they won't be filing their vaccine with regulators uh, in the US, Europe or the UK until the third quarter. Um, Becky, I know you um, wrote a little bit about Novavax this week. Um, What are the implications of them having this delay? Yeah, so so the bad news for Novavax here is effectively, you know, the longer it takes the company to uh, complete this uh, phase three data and put in their own submissions, um, I guess the higher regulatory bar that that they're going to face. Um, We know that. Pfizer has already started a rolling submission uh, for regular approval of its vaccine. And sort of once that happens, um, we're going to have a lot more pressure to see these phase three studies being conducted um, against, you know, an approved vaccine as the comparator as opposed to a placebo control. So obviously, you know, showing that you are at least as good as um, one of the mRNA vaccines is going to be, you know, a fair bit more challenging than showing that you are, you know, uh, better than a placebo. So this will really, you know, really raise the bar, particularly uh, in the U.S. um, for, uh, these, you know, follow-on uh, vaccine developers um, to, you know, be able to get a foot in the door. Um, and this is also, you know, problematic just in in terms of getting access to unvaccinated patients to even conduct these studies. Um, you know, Pfizer has now, you know, like you said, opened up into this um, adolescent population. So that's just, you know, sort of one more group um, that these follow-on developers like Novavax or Inovio just sort of don't have access to anymore in the U.S. Okay. And of course, it's worth, you know, it's worth reminding listeners that the the Novavax data, uh, which I don't have to hand, but I mean, it was pretty impressive when the, when the initial um results were were released a few months ago and i know talking from a uk perspective um because i believe there is a manufacturing plant in the uk i know that it it, it is deemed to be kind of an important component of of the kind of vaccine response so definitely will be interesting um i I wanted to ask what what your kind of take was both of you on on this um this idea of, of of vaccinating adolescents um against uh, COVID-19. I guess there's a kind of a bit of a question mark at the moment as to whether, you know, we should be um, vaccinating younger people, you know, the vast majority of whom are at much lower risk, um, you know, versus, 
using those supplies of the vaccine, perhaps in countries where there's less overall supply. I mean, it seemed to me that there was kind of a lot of enthusiasm on social media for expanding the US vaccination program into teenagers. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I can see it both ways, really. Um, you know, if the day is there and it seems to be, you know, FDA is taking their time and everything, the, the data is there to, to approve it in younger people. Yeah. Seems like a good idea. Um, but uh, at the same time, I understand the other side of it too. So I guess, I don't know, I guess I'm on the fence. If I had a, if I had like a 15 year old, I'd probably have like a stronger opinion <laughs> at this yeah. point. Sure, sure. So I guess the other thing that was, that's been quite interesting that we've seen this week as well, there's been this, and this is something we've spoken about in, in the past, there's been this ongoing discussion around um, the potential necessity to have um, boosters uh, coming into the fall, potentially. Um, one of the interesting things that was mentioned this week was actually um, BioNTech, um, who obviously are working with Pfizer. Um, they've said that there's currently no evidence to suggest that the, the, the current version of their vaccine needs adapting um, to, to, to tackle the variants that are known. Um, but I know Pfizer in, in recent weeks have been talking about, you know, the, the need to keep antibody titers high um, until the global epidemic is sort of under control. So that's definitely something to watch. One thing I also sort of wanted to shout out as well, we spoke last week about um, Pfizer's uh, revenues from the vaccine um, sort of being on track to reach about $26 billion this year. Um, I noticed that analysts at Bernstein have actually, their own forecast is for um, $36 billion in sales this year. So again, something else to keep an eye on. Um, I think all this discussion around uh, the, need, the need to have boosters, obviously uh, the developments this week with um, moving into adolescence is all going to play a part in this kind of, this revenue stream. And then obviously how sustainable that is over time. Moving beyond uh, COVID-19 vaccines, we saw a number of interesting R&D collaborations announced by leading pharma companies this week. Um, we actually saw uh, Biogen announce two deals, uh, one of which is to work with a company called Capsigen uh, in a bid to accelerate the development of gene therapies in the uh, CNS and neuromuscular disorder areas. But Michael, I know a deal that caught your eye was um, was Biogen in licensing um, a potential treatment for stroke from a company called TMS, which is a spin out from Tokyo University. Yeah, so they, from a BioBucks perspective, this is a really small deal. They they initially paid four million dollars for an option back in two thousand eighteen to this candidate, which at the time was in phase one testing. Um, the compound itself is, is interesting. It, it basically makes a lot of sense. It's, it's a small molecule designed to mimic the activity of Roche's tissue plasminogen activa activator, uh, Activase, which is actually the most recently approved drug for stroke. It was um, given a label expansion back in 1996. So this is a small molecule that designed to work similarly and um, basically overcome some of the big, big hurdles to use of Activase, which is basically you need to use it within like three hours of, of a stroke uh, for most people. And it also comes with some serious safety 
concerns. Uh, so uh, this, they basically, what Biogen did was they paid just a very small pittance uh, a few years ago. They just saw some phase two data for this compound and basically it, it hit them it hit what they were looking for you know it, it uh, patients were able to receive it after an average of 9.5 hours i believe which um obviously isn't a ton but it's it's certainly a big step forward from three hours um and uh it seems to have had some preliminary anyway efficacy and and safety looks good so Again, in BioBug's perspective, this is not a huge deal. I think they paid uh, maybe 18 million, I think, for the to exercise the the license um, and take on this this compound. Which, if, if successful, I mean, stroke is a massive uh, indication. It's proven to be very difficult to to get into for pharma drug developers. But if it works, this could have huge upside. Um, and it just sort of encapsulates what Biogen's strategy has been in the R&D or in the in-licensing um, uh, field because they just, they really like neural programs that are high risk, high reward, and this fits right in with that. Um, so it's it's an interesting deal and, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see if it works. Obviously, everybody's way, way more focused on what's going on with aducanumab at the moment since we're within a month or so of, of the big coin flip. But uh, yeah, the, the deal itself just caught my eye as something is both interesting from a scientific perspective and um, appropriate given Biogen's uh, track record in, in business development. Okay. And elsewhere this week, um, Eli Lilly announced uh, what, well, what could be, I guess, it's a, it's a heavily backloaded deal, but it could be a sizable deal uh, in terms of biobucks to work with Mina Therapeutics um, to develop small activating RNA-based drug candidates. Um, Becky, obviously anything involving RNA is kind of, you know, is all uh, the rage at the moment. Um, but I believe this is just kind of the latest in a series of deals that, that Mina has uh, signed with, with larger pharma companies. Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, this deal, it's sort of uh, old news for, for Eli Lilly in the sense that they've been um, picking up uh, a lot of, you know, historically they picked up a lot of RNA-based uh, partnerships. Um, but uh, for Mina, it's quite interesting in the sense that, you know, this was a company uh, that was founded around some um, academic technology in, I believe, 2008. Um, but they didn't, you know, sort of piece together and, you know, official um, Series A round until um, about 20 years, excuse me, 10 years later. Um, so they have been sort of, you know, kind of hobbling along with these um, various uh, partnering deals sort of in the absence of that uh, kind of official financing, um, which is pretty interesting to me. But uh, yes, yeah, so they've had uh, um, several other pretty high profile partnerships. And, you know, like you've mentioned um, within the past year, these have sort of, you know, taken off in a uh, uh, faster clip, I think, as um, COVID vaccines have kind of raised the profile for RNA technologies overall. Um, so this company has one uh, clinical candidate currently in liver cancer. Um, you know, like you'd mentioned, this is an RNA activating technology, and in the case of their one disclosed candidate, 
um, they are um, effectively uh, stimulating the activity of a particular transcription factor to um, hopefully drive a you know therapeutic gene expression profile uh, for liver cancer. Um, and then they have a whole slew of undisclosed candidates in various um, therapeutic areas from you know these, these partnerships like you mentioned before, uh, AstraZeneca, for example, um, they're partnered with uh, for metabolic diseases. Um, yeah, so it'll be uh, very interesting to see sort of what they can, you know, turn all this, you know, deal activity that they've seen recently, what they can turn that into. Um, I see they've onbo onboarded a CFO for the first time um, earlier this year, I believe. So it'll be, you know, interesting to see if they're, uh, you know, going for a, um, you know, more aggressive uh, financing plans in the future with, you know, all this cash they've got lying around now. First quarter earnings season has seen drug developers both large and small bemoan the impact of reduced face-to-face -face interaction between sales reps and doctors on the performance of some product franchises. However, based on results from our latest survey, fielded to 1,000 physicians in 10 markets and the sixth in a series we have run since May 2020, the situation continues to improve, and more markedly so since the turn of the year. At the time of fielding in April, physicians based in an office or clinic setting said that they had met on average with three pharma industry representatives face-to-face -face over the prior week. Those based predominantly in a hospital setting cited an average of 1.7 interactions. Feedback from the very first in this series of surveys showed that in-person interactions declined to exceptionally low levels, essentially stopping altogether in May of last year. At the height of global lockdown activity, before there was a pronounced increase in July. A consistently steady upward trend in interaction rates has occurred thereafter, which has accelerated further since the beginning of 2021. Owing to the successful and rapid rollout of vaccination programmes in most of the markets where this survey is being fielded, it can be reasonably assumed that the frequency of face-to-face -face engagements between physicians and pharma representatives will accelerate further over the coming months. Nevertheless, taking into account any type of interaction, be it face-to-face -face or virtual, between physicians and sales reps or medical science liaisons, survey feedback shows that the current rate of engagement, though moving in the right direction, remains notably below pre-pandemic levels. Doctors suggest, for example, that on average they are interacting with four pharma sales reps a week versus a rate of seven before the pandemic. Similarly, Interaction with MSLs is currently limit on, limited on average to once a week versus a prior norm of two weekly interactions. This does suggest that reductions in face-to-face -face meetings between pharma employees will continue to be frequently cited as a cause for potential underperformance by management at drug companies over the next few quarters. For more on the survey results, be sure to check out the analysis on firstwordpharma.com. And thanks for listening to this episode of the First Take Podcast.